Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On August 8th, an all-star panel of foreign affairs experts talked about where America stands in the world and who's up and who's down on the global horizon. Once America led by the power of its example, a shining city on a hill that's shown as a beacon for freedom and democracy around the world. Then four years of the America First doctrine alienated our allies and emboldened our adversaries. And as American democracy itself came under siege, our light as a world leader dimmed. Today we'll explore if and how we can rebuild our preeminent standing in the world. Here to help us do that is an all-star panel of foreign policy experts. Joining us are Richard Haas, President of the Council on Foreign Relations. David Ignatius, Foreign Affairs Columnist for the Washington Post. And Robin Wright, Columnist for the New Yorker. We want to find out what you all think are the challenges and the hotspots around the globe. But first, I want to start with where you think America stands in the world today. And Richard, I'm going to start with you. Before he set off on his first trip abroad as president, President Biden said, whether it's ending the pandemic or dealing with climate crisis or confronting the malign activities of Russia and China, America has to lead the world from a position of strength. My question to you is, how would you assess that position of strength right now? We're stronger than we were, but we're not as strong as we could or should be. We made significant progress early on against uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. economy has been growing well. The fact that the big debate is about whether inflation is looming is in some ways uh, a signal that we've obviously bounced back there. But the quality of our democracy, uh, our political system still isn't uh, functioning in a way that I would think many or even any around the world would want to, to, to emulate. So all this talk about America being back and the rest is, is, is simply premature. Uh, there's signs of progress, but again, there's still some really disquieting signals, certainly uh, at home. And as we'll talk about, certain things in foreign policy are also, I would argue, uh, equally troubling. I watched an interview you did with um, an Australian in a think tank, and you were asked, what worries you the most? What's the biggest problem you see? And you didn't, even, you didn't even hesitate. You said us, this ruptured, divided country that basically has shown the world that our democracy is as fragile as other democracies around the world can be. So the question I have is, how do you put that in the context of how we're seen? Does that forever tarnish our reputation? Can we bounce back from that? But people are not going to forget what happened on January 6th. They're also not going to forget or dismiss simply the lack of what? Predictability that has entered into American foreign policy. If you think about it for roughly 70 years after World War II, for all the differences in American foreign policy, the, the consistency and the similarities, regardless of which party was running uh, things, the, the similarities were greater. And I think what's happened in recent years is that suddenly the United States has become uh, unpredictable. And around the world, some people might say, well, we're glad the Biden administration is back. It's a little bit more familiar. 
we don't we don't know whether this is a temporary respite and we don't know what happens in in four years and even the biden administration is not quite as reassuring as they would have wanted we're getting out of afghanistan in a in a big rush the united states rather than being the leading force in the world for global trade has backed out of uh, all sorts of regional trade agreements including the big agreements in 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 the asia pacific so again the rest of the world just isn't quite sure what to make of us and that's obviously bad or dangerous imagine you're an ally or a friend depending on the united states for the lion's share of your security it raises all sorts of questions about the wisdom of that decision if you're a foe an adversary the temptation to to challenge us has obviously gone up because again we're less predictable we're less sure to respond we're more focused on domestic uh, challenges and it wouldn't be odd for Russia or China to conclude that the United States has lost some of its appetite for for world involvement much less global global leadership so i think these questions uh, for the most part work against our our interests and work against our influence in the world Robin, I want to ask how you assess our, our position of, of relative strength at this point. Um, leaders in China, President Vladimir Putin, have actually, I don't want, gloated, mocked, I don't know what word you want to use, but in, in looking at, as Richard just pointed out, the January 6th insurrection, the fact that we couldn't even execute a fundamental principle of a democracy, which is the peaceful transfer of power, um, how that's seen around the world. Now, you've had an extraordinary career over four decades. You've visited 102 countries. You've been everywhere. You've talked to everybody. What is it you're hearing about how the, the United States is seen? Well, I think, first of all, we have to note that all of America's adversaries have become more aggressive, more assertive, and more self-confident. Some of our adversaries are feeling that the, that the United States doesn't have the staying power anymore that it kind of has lost its groove, its credibility, its, uh, its ability to kind of stand up to the bullies. Uh, we lost 20 years basically fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan while China was becoming ever more powerful. Putin was exercising his muscle. Uh, this, with Russia particularly, this should never have happened. But both of them have been able to use the kind of tools that we have shied away from because of our democratic principles, uh, tools like cyber. We use them, but not to the extent that they use uh, cyber against us. The nature of power has shifted in the last 20 years. The uh, type of warfare, we're dealing with hybrid wars now that are not military force. They are they involve cyber and mercenary forces. Um, but when you look at what uh, Russia has managed to do, even in a war like Syria, it now has gained a naval and a air force base in Syria, it has a on the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean. It has a presence in the Southern Mediterranean in Libya, uh, and of course, its aggression against Ukraine. The United States has not been able to force any of these countries to pull back to uh, honor kind of the international assumptions, the international rules of engagement. China is becoming ever more uh, adventurous, whether it's probing the South China Seas in its a ruthless crackdown in Hong Kong. It's very hard for the United States now to push back. Whatever Joe Biden says about America is back, the West is back, our alliances with the West are back, um, and our commitment to democracy is greater than ever. The fact is, none of that's true. 
Richard, back to you on the whole issue of something you wrote about recently, which was um, that the Trump doctrine, let me start, go back a little bit. The Trump doctrine actually got high marks, got some credit from people. Uh, Mr. Trump was the consummate disruptor. He challenged old assumptions. He shook things up. He um, was unpredictable. And the Washington Post wrote a piece talking about what Trump got right and the fact that he tried to normalize relations between Arab and, and Israel um, was one thing they mentioned. You talked about the fact that um, in some ways there is still a continuation of Trumpism uh, in our foreign policy right now, even though Mr. Trump is not in the, in the White House. What did you mean by that? Well, some of these trends, and it goes back to what Robin was just talking about, began before Mr. Trump, and some of these same trends continue after him. In the case of now Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden's continued many of his policies. I already mentioned uh, Afghanistan, uh, getting out there. The only difference between them is several months. China, the similarities between their policies towards China are much greater than their, their differences. Trade, neither one of them, shall we say, was or is an enthusiast for, for free trade. In some ways, you know, what we're seeing is a new bipartisanship there, which takes, uh, which distances itself from the thrust of American foreign policy over the, uh, over the preceding decades, even on something like uh, the vaccine. Uh, Mr. Biden was essentially an America firster. On, on, on economics, uh, this much larger role for the government in the economy. Uh, what we're seeing, American industrial policy, this kind of economic nationalism. So the uh, the idea that somehow there's a fine line or a sharp division between the, the Trump foreign policy and the Biden one uh, simply doesn't hold up. Now, there obviously are differences. And I can imagine Robin and yourself saying, well, what about allies? Yes, this, this administration is more interested in multilateralism and working with allies. It got big, back into the World Health Organization. It wants to do more on climate change through the Paris process. I understand that. But what's striking to me, taking a step back, is not that there are some differences, it's how much continuity there is. And that suggests to me that some of this will last beyond Mr. Biden, that this may be emerging as the new post-Cold War American foreign policy. At this point, we're going to take our first video question, which goes to the whole issue of Mr. Trump's propensity to befriend autocrats and strongmen at, at the expense, really, of being a team player. And Robin, we're going to have you take first crack at it after we watch it. And let's do that right now. Hello, this is Hernan from Fairfield County. The last U.S. administration threatened to leave NATO, a core component of the post-war Western alliance. Other than policy speeches, what tangible measures can the Biden administration enact to assure our most important allies that even if our election cycle once again focuses inward, we will remain a reliable partner in international diplomacy and security? Muchas gracias. Robin, what would you tell Hernan? I, I wish there was an easy answer for that. I'm not sure that there's anything that we can do to uh, reassure allies. I think the reality is that we are in an election cycle and four, four years happens to me anyway, faster and faster every time as our campaign gets longer and longer. Uh, I think that the language of the Biden administration uh, in committing to democracy, human rights, and so forth, is one of the most dramatic shifts from the Trump administration. The one problem, and this is where I agree with your questioner, what can the United States do to be more than friendly with 
the more democratic leaders or welcome them to the White House? What tools do we have to help them? What are the means that you build alliances? Is it through military alliances like NATO? Uh, or is it using your tools like AID, the Agency for International Development, to try to help communities that need assistance uh, to strengthen their democracy, to strengthen the civil society groups that are instrumental in creating voices of dissent and, and demanding basic human rights? So it's a, I think it's a real challenge, and I think it's one that's going to be with us for a very long time, particularly as our population is so divided. Richard was right in pointing out that we are our major foreign policy problem. David, at this point, I want to bring you into this conversation. We're delighted to have you. What would you do? What do you, can anything, what can be done to try and reassure um, maybe our nervous allies after, you know, bailing out of the Paris Accords and, and having Mr. Trump torpedo the JCPOA, the, the Iranian nuclear deal? You can't blame them for being um, concerned about what could happen in the future. How would you try and reassure them? I think the best reassurance we can give Jane is to be steadily, consistently on the mend, both as an ally, uh, in our contacts with them, working again in forms on, on climate control, but more fundamentally, uh, coming back to the uh, leading role as a uh, shaper of, of security issues uh, in the world, uh, getting our economy strong relative to, to others. I think one really interesting f fact for me is that right now, as opposed to a year ago, the United States looks a little stronger than I would have bet in terms of its place in the global economy. China looks a little weaker than I would have expected. And I think that kind of thing, that evidence, which I think is widely shared by people who were trading in financial markets around the world, that kind of evidence begins gradually to reassure people that America's back, America's more like what we remember. And so there's a virtuous cycle here. Over time, that confidence leads to renewed trust uh, and things get stitched back together. To what do you attribute that, that those that, that we seem stronger than you had maybe anticipated we would? Is there something you can point to that you think is responsible? So I think, um, first, just, just getting off the crazy, uh, I'm going to call it a sugar high, but that doesn't begin to do justice to how crazy it is, of the, of the Trump presidency living every day uh, by tweet, and that's not just Americans, but people around the world. I, having a president who's more like what the world knows and expects. I think the stimulus the programs that were enacted under Trump and their cumulative effect, plus the stimulus that's been enacted this year, plus the sense that Biden is having some success in, in getting bipartisan support for infrastructure bills, plus, I'll give you one example, the legislation that um, uh, Senator Mark Warner helped shape in, in the Senate to uh, make America's semiconductor industry strong and dominant in the world after a period when we've just seemed to be giving up that uh, race to the Chinese. Those are all signs that people see. Uh, I think they're pumping a lot of money into the economy. We have worries about inflation, but to be honest, uh, for now, I think the markets have basically accepted the Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's argument that this is, this is temporary. One thing that isn't temporary, Richard, um, is the way that 
the Trump administration, his two secretaries of state, basically eviscerated the State Department, um, hollowed it out, however you want to call it. And the question is, when you've made soft power or diplomacy a dirty word, isn't that damage that lasts well beyond this administration? And the short answer is yes. Uh, it takes years to rebuild uh, an institution and, uh, and the people who work in it. So I would think it's now a 10 to 20 year challenge to essentially persuade the best and brightest of the coming generations that they ought to be serving their country in such places as the Foreign Service or the, the, the State Department. It's tough. In my day, government was one of the most attractive paths to take. I think now it's hard for a lot of these young people coming out of college with uh, all sorts of student loans to pass up Goldman Sachs and go to the State Department. So I think there's an enormous challenge there to, to, to bring them in. There's obviously the fact that a lot of people left prematurely. We, we hemorrhaged talent. And one of the uh, things that the current Secretary of State, I know he's thinking about, is how do we attract some of these people uh, back? But also, I think you've got to make diplomacy exciting again. You've got to, we've got to demonstrate that diplomacy is one of the principal tools of, of American foreign policy, of American national security. We've got to show that negotiations can really make a, a positive difference. It happened often during the Cold War. Diplomacy was exciting. It was important, whether it was the initial breakthrough with China, the arms control agreements with, uh, with the Soviet Union, the peace agreements in the Middle East. And I think the, the challenge going forward is to show that diplomacy can make a real difference, that America can be effective using it. And then I, over a series of years, a series of uh, successive secretaries of state, I think we can rebuild it. And I just say one other thing. One of the phrases I'd love to see disappear is the whole idea of deep state. Deep state is really a, a pejorative description of people who are dedicating their lives and careers to working for the United States government. And rather than criticizing them, rather than treating them badly, I would have thought that we all ought to say thank you. We ought to celebrate them. And again, we ought to, we ought to want the best and brightest in this society to enter government service and stay there. At this point, I want to turn to what you all consider to be the greatest challenges on the global landscape. And we're going to start with the one that President Biden says is his top priority, and that's China. Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman just got back from talks in China, and we were lucky to have her with us last year on this broadcast. And we have a little bit of footage of her that shows how remarkably prophetic she was. Let's take a look at that. There is a very clear set of goals. They want to become not only our competitor, but they want to become the leader of the world on their terms, by their rules. Uh, they are building their economy. They are innovating. They're investing in infrastructure. They're investing all around the world. Now, the way they invest around the world doesn't always work. They give loans to many countries in Africa, bring in Chinese to do the work. Um, don't really care about human rights or anything else. Their values are quite different, but they're very purposeful, very intentional, very strategic. And I think whoever is president next is going to have to invest in America so that we can compete with China, we can confront and challenge China whenever and however we must, but at the same time also find those areas, perhaps nonproliferation, 
perhaps climate change, uh, pandemics, where we can cooperate. But it's going to be probably an essential relationship going forward. And they are very intentional about what they're doing. David, I want to start with you on this. What do you see as the biggest hurdles? I mean, since the pandemic, the, the relationship with China has just deteriorated even more. What do you see as the biggest obstacles to trying to do something, at least in some more you know, amicable vein with China? For the moment, Jane, I, I think the question of the amicable vein um, misses what I think this administration, but there's broad bipartisan agreement um, on this point, would see as the, as the, the key uh, emphasis. China has been very aggressive um, in its foreign policy, increasingly in its domestic policy. Um, its moves in Hong Kong to restrict uh, freedoms, uh, the, essentially vitiate the understanding on which Hong Kong became this quasi-independent autonomous zone. Uh, that, that was stunning to people. The pressure that, uh, that China's putting on Taiwan, similarly uh, disturbing. The, the way in which China is treating the South China Sea as, as it's, in, in effect, an inland lake uh, dominated, uh, controlled by, by China. So those things worry people. They, they worry the United States, but they worry countries in the region. So for the moment, I don't think the issue is how do we get to amicable relations? Gee, can't we have some summit meetings? Well, let's invite uh, Xi Jinping to Rehoboth Beach. I, I just don't think it's a moment like that. Uh, I think the administration has been very deliberate in trying to reframe our relationship with China in light of what I think there's now generally a consensus view is, is this very much more aggressive China. I think the Chinese uh, have, have been overplaying their hand over the last several years. You see that in, in the Chinese leadership's um, rebuff of some of the most uh, dynamic Chinese private companies, you know, the, the, the Chinese champions, Tencent, Alibaba, these, these extraordinary companies uh, and entrepreneurs, Jack Ma, one of the smartest of China's Jeff Bezos, was just cuffed back by the leadership uh, in the last six months. Uh, so I think that's, again, taken as a, as a sign that uh, she has been overconfident, has been overplaying his hand. So the administration for now is trying to work with our allies. Uh, just to close this out, Jane, the, the one thing that they, I think they would properly say if we ask them, well, what about you know, more amicable relations? They'd say, we're going to focus for now on our allies. Richard, I've heard you say that President Xi is uh, the most powerful leader since Mao, and that there's a sense in China that they really feel that their time has come to be the dominant world force. Where does that confidence come from? That is their view. It comes from two directions. One is their own record. If you look at where China was 30 or 40 years ago and where they are now, whatever you think of China, it's a remarkable accomplishment. And even though the ways they did it were often brutal towards their own people, and they've paid an enormous price in terms of individual liberty and rights, China's economic accomplishment is extraordinary. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And also what China has done in terms of building a modern economy, 
It's why, by the way, all these analogies to the Cold War are so flawed. The, the Soviet Union was never a significant global economy. China is. China, it's not just large, but, it, but it's integrated. It's everywhere. And one of the implications of that is that our allies, who are our strategic partners, are not going to want to choose between us because for many of them, the South Koreas, the Japans, and others, China's their principal economic partner or one of their two principal economic partners. So China has arrived in many ways. And the other half of Chinese confidence or arrogance, I would say, is based upon us. They look at us. They look at uh, what they see as untidy or anarchic at times democracy. They see what we're now doing in uh, Afghanistan. They basically say, see why democracy is bad and why we don't want to have it. Look at the violence in America and look at the untidiness uh, there. So they point to our divisions at home. They point to what they see as our, our shortness of breath, so to speak, in some of our foreign policy uh, commitments. So they basically feel their time has arrived. Now, this is dangerous because obviously if they decide to continue to act on it, we very well could have a crisis. Taiwan is the issue that most alarms people. So I would think that one of our challenges should be less to transform China. We're not going to transform China uh, politically. What we want to do is make every Chinese leader, and particularly the one leader who counts, Xi Jinping, understand that any aggression against something like Taiwan would be counterproductive militarily and economically for China. We've got to, though, close or narrow the gap between our commitments and our capabilities. And that, to me, is one of the real challenges that faces this administration when it comes to dealing with, 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 with China. We're out of balance there. We're going to take another video question right now. And uh, David, we're going to have you take first crack at this one, which deals with something that President Biden and Vladimir Putin talked about in Geneva, and that's regulating behavior in cyberspace. Here it is. I'm Jill in London, and my question is this. Where do you think the Biden administration is going in terms of pushing back against Russian and Chinese subversion? Do you think the Internet has given us a new era of meddling in great power rivalries? Well, that's a great uh, question. And the Internet certainly has empowered uh, mischief makers in, in Moscow, Beijing, and, and uh, around the corner. Um, uh, so what, what are we going to do about it? Um, the dilemma that the United States and other democracies have, I think, is that the weirdly, the internet era of open information has ended up empowering closed societies that can control information and has ended up weakening open societies like ours that let information flow freely and chaotically and that are more open to uh, dangerous uh, hacking. It's, it's a paradox that, that just ends up being the opposite of what you might have predicted. So I think there's been a, a gradual effort to think more clearly about how we protect cyberspace, how we protect this information domain in, in which we survive, do business, um, transact every element of our, of our personal and financial lives. Um, I, I think the Biden administration uh, is being more explicit in its warnings to the Russians uh, that if you allow continued ransomware attacks, for example, on 
uh, major companies like Colonial Pipeline, if, if you allow your uh, internet mischief makers to operate freely, you're going to pay a price unspecified. And the, the question for all of us is um, trying to figure out, do they really mean it? Um, and what, what's, the, what's the, the price of that going to be? Robin, um, in terms of the cyberspace question, do you have something to add to that? Well, one of the interesting parts and one of the big policy debates is how much, how far do you go in using your cyber capabilities against another country? Uh, we have the capability, I've been told, if we wanted to with Iran, actually to take it totally off the grid so that it had no electricity, uh, no, no ability to, to function at all. Uh, but we don't want to do that because we don't want to set the precedent that that is the type of warfare that is acceptable. It's, just, it's like a, a nuclear weapon. No one wants to have to use it because that means that others might use it against us. And there are a, there are a lot of really big questions that I think have yet to be answered. Uh, and the problem is our toolkit is not very large. What do you do with a player like Russia? Do you sanction uh, the government, do you sanction the hackers? I mean, what impact does that have if the hackers are quasi, are acting quasi on behalf of the Russian government, even if there's some element of deniability there? With cyber, we're in such a kind of new new domain, new type of warfare, that, that we don't kind of understand uh, how far we can go, what we should do, and what's going to have an impact. And I think we're just at the dawn of the digital wars and the... Uh, uh, the invisible wars in many ways, because we can't see, we as the taxpayers can't see what our government is doing or necessarily always what other governments are doing to us, often until after the fact. Look how long it took us to recognize what Russia has been doing to our elections and even still trying to track some of it. Richard, I want to go to something that President Biden said, um, I think sort of off the cuff after he got out of his meeting with Vladimir Putin in Geneva. And it basically was people make a big deal about foreign policy and diplomacy and negotiating. And he said, basically what it comes down to are relationships between people. Now, Joe Biden is the fifth president, I think, that Vladimir Putin has um, had to deal with. He has gaslighted or lied to or stymied every single one of them. How, how, do, you think, how do you think Joe Biden is seen by Vladimir Putin. Well, first of all, I, I'd probably begin by taking some something of an issue with the president. I don't think foreign policy is all about relationships or even mostly about relationships. Uh, foreign leaders pursue agendas that they believe are either in their country's best interests or their own best interests, not necessarily in that in that order. And in my own experience as a diplomat, uh, people didn't make concessions because they liked me and they didn't hang tough because they disliked me. They were under uh, fairly clear uh, guidelines. And again, they, they, they did things for, for reasons, professional reasons or personal reasons, but not, not for reasons of, uh, of likability or relationship uh, uh, building. Look, I think in terms of uh, the Russians, you know, we early on, one of the first things the administration did, and it was a good thing, we reached agreement with the Russians on an extension, extension of our nuclear arms control agreement. And I think that was uh, important at least for a time being, it, it froze things there. But as David and Robin have talked about, we've got this whole new domain, the new Wild West of cyber. 
And the real question is, uh, can we regulate it? Because right now you got virtually no laws and you got a lot of people riding around with the equivalent of guns. Uh, Russia has been put on notice. What I, uh, what I hope the president told Mr. Putin was the same thing we told a lot of governments after uh, 9-11, that if you harbor terrorists, if you allow terrorists to operate out of your territory, we're going to treat you no differently than we treat terrorists. You are responsible as a sovereign country. Ought to be the same thing with cyber. These people operating out of, uh, say, Russia or China, I would say there's negligible chance they are freelancing. Robin, I want to talk about one of your uh, most recent pieces, which had to do with the ascension of um, a hard, hardliner, a zealot who was just inaugurated in Iran. He has been tied to a massacre of some 5,000 political dissidents. He completes a, a move to just have Tehran totally uh, controlled by hardliners. And if there was ever any hope that the uh, Iran nuclear deal could be resuscitated, because it's sort of been on, I guess, could I say life support? Um, this latest development probably does not bode well for that happening, and in fact, could really portend the major escalation of a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Could you talk about that? Well, Ibrahim Marisi is uh, a hardliner from the most hardline element of zealots in the Islamic Republic. And he was elected at a time that they this particular faction has taken control of all the branches of government, the legislature, the judiciary, as well as the intelligence and military communities. And uh, this is an ominous development, not just for the Iran nuclear deal, which I, feel, I still think might, might uh, be renegotiated to bring the United States and Iran back into the deal, but under terms that are probably much more difficult for President Biden to accept. The bigger danger is, or question, is whether Iran can be kind of contained anymore. It has now the largest missile uh, arsenal in the Middle East. It has uh, used drones, most recently against uh, a ship with a tanker with connections to Israel. Uh, it has been willing to be more aggressive physically as well as politically. It has, in many ways, the most cohesive alliance in the Middle East with its allies, its proxies, its militias in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, that the, in a divided region, ironically, um, a country with a minority in terms of its ethnicity and its religion is, in many ways, has its tentacles in more countries than anyone else. And so I think it's not just one man, because Raisi actually has said very little about foreign policy or domestic policy. He's never been involved in politics before. He was, as you pointed out, he was involved as a judge, including in a, a massacre of political prisoners in 1988, but also most recently as the judiciary chief, where he sanctioned the death of child offenders, the execution of child offenders, and the arrest of prominent uh, lawyers who were defending human rights uh, activists. So this is a very uh, worrying development. Now, I don't think we should write off the JCPOA, the nuclear deal just yet, but I think it's going to be ever harder to get there uh, and under terms that may not be as agreeable to the United States as they were. Um, remember, President Trump walked away from the deal. And during that the period that we were outside of the deal, 
Iran made extraordinary advances in its military program and in building uh, this alliance, this network across the Middle East. And that's what's most worrisome about this election. David, you were recently uh, in Iraq and you met with Prime Minister Kadimi. And I got the sense from reading that you, you think what we've done there is actually fairly positive. Am I, I'm afraid after using the word amicable to say anything at this point, but um, is, that, is that a correct reading of how you yes. felt when you were in Iraq? Yes. I, 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 so, I, so I do think the, the, uh, the situation in, in Iraq is um, different in some notable, important ways from Afghanistan. Two endless wars, two countries where we... Uh, in the case of Afghanistan, have removed our combat troops. In the case of Iraq, are removing them. But there's a, a quite significant difference. Uh, in Iraq, we are going to keep a small residual force that will do training, advising, uh, intelligence sharing with an Iraqi military that uh, has fought pretty well um, in the fight against ISIS, the, the recapture of Mosul was a bloody fight. And uh, the Iraqi, uh, especially their counterterrorism service, their commandos, did a pretty darn good job. And so um, the U.S. has something to build with. The interesting thing about Prime Minister al-Khadami, a former journalist uh, and then head of the Iraqi intelligence service before becoming prime minister, is that he is trying to find um, a path between his very powerful neighbor to the east, Iran, which tries to manipulate Iraq every way it possibly can using these Shiite militia proxies, um, between that Iran and, and the United States and its, its many friends and allies. He's been trying to make Iraq more Arab again. He's met with King Abdullah of Jordan, President al-Sisi of Egypt. He's offered Iraq and himself as a mediator between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's one of the more interesting diplomatic engagements in the region, and that's, uh, that's Khadami's project. And so I just would urge people to, to keep an eye on Iraq. I don't mean to oversell it, but it's a place where some interesting things have happened. Before we go into our segment dealing with um, maybe some ways you think we could improve the situation around the world, uh, David, I do want to ask you on a personal note, uh, since it's been established that Crown Prince Mohammed uh, bin Salman really knew about and probably, possibly, whatever word you want to use, ordered um, uh, the horrific murder of your colleague Jamal Khashoggi, uh, and it appears that he will just continue to live in splendor, reign in splendor, go on in splendor. How do you deal with that dose of real politic? So, uh, obviously, uh, those of us supposed to work with uh, knew and, and liked uh, Jamal Khashoggi are still struggling with his murder and the viciousness of it. And the quest basic question you ask is how the United States can told uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who the evidence is overwhelming, that he ordered the, uh, the uh, attack on, on Jamal in Istanbul. How do we hold him accountable without um, shredding the U.S.-Saudi relationship? I personally think that would be a mistake, as strongly as I feel 
uh, we must condemn uh, uh, MBS, as he's called. I think the relationship with Saudi Arabia is important, worth keeping. Uh, and I, I, I think the puzzle for this administration uh, has been that the, the Saudis just don't seem to be getting the messages that we're sending in various ways. Uh, MBS um, needs our defense help. He, he, he pretends that he could get the, the same d defense hardware assistance from China or Russia. He couldn't. Uh, uh, Saudis really dependent on on U.S. And you'd think he'd be he'd be more responsive, but he uh, he hasn't been. I think this is like a lot of things in diplomacy. Richard knows this better than, than almost anybody. Uh, progress that's going to be made on this front will will probably be done quietly. Uh, I, you know, as angry as I am about it, I probably won't know about it till after it's happened. MBS has got to get the message that. Um, unless he makes changes that ensure that the kind of thing that happened to Jamal will never happen again, it's not going to be business as usual. Richard, do you have something you wanted to add? I think his basic direction is exactly right. We should be very specific and in terms of uh, any improvements in the relationship need to be linked to certain behaviors. We can't bring Jamal to show you back to life. What we can do is try to influence Saudi behavior going forward, whether it's their behavior in Yemen or their, their behavior at home. I think it, but that's a place where we actually have a bit of influence. Uh, places like China, Russia, and so forth, I think we actually have less influence when it comes to the way we, they treat their own people. And that's ironic because this is a, an administration that's put these issues of democracy and human rights at the forefront. The emphasis, I think, needs to be with many of these countries, uh, not exclusively, but the emphasis on their external behavior. And that I think we have a greater chance to, to influence. So with China, it's what it does in the South China Sea or what it does with uh, Taiwan or maybe with North Korea, with Russia on some of the nuclear questions or the Middle East. But I don't think we're going to get these countries to, to move fundamentally in ways that are going to respect uh, freedoms or rights. Uh, these, are, these are leaders who have concentrated and consolidated power to an extraordinary degree. And I think they've decided they can get away with it. At this point, we are going to go to our final video question, which comes courtesy of Samuel in New York City. And it goes to how you see the future playing out. Let's take a look at it right now. Many on the left and right are advocating for the United States to take a step back from global politics. What would be the international consequences and implications if America were to take more of a backseat position on the international political arena? Robin, I'm going to go to you because, well, go ahead, please. I don't think America is going to take a backseat. Uh, I think the American population is not as interested, but that doesn't mean the government is going to take a, a, a step back. I think we have some big choices to make. And this is where I might disagree with my colleagues a little bit. I think there are some tools, and we, with Saudi Arabia, for example, we still don't know where Jamal Khashoggi's body is. Uh, there are, we're selling them a lot of military equipment. There are ways we can use uh, what we provide, whether it's to Egypt or to Saudi Arabia. Um, we're not taking on China to begin with, but if we build a reputation for uh, pushing back, um, using our resources to help those who are engaging in democratic practices, that we begin building a reputation that matches our ideals and not just 
ceding to the autocrats who have a constituency of one and who don't really care what their populations think. Uh, it's all about them staying in power. And I think that we need to draw some red lines and do some things about it and not just stand back and watch it. Want to ask uh, one last question, Robin, about you, you had written about why it's so hard for America to end its forever wars. And there are people who would argue that, um, you know, why don't we just pack up and, and get out of there like we finally did in, in Vietnam in 1973? I mean, in the Middle East, there's a worldwide glut of petroleum products, of oil. What's our strategic interest there? Why are we? I mean, people don't get it. What are they missing? Well, we may be energy independent, but the reality is that a lot of our allies are not. And that's one of the reasons that Germany did a deal with Russia on Nord Stream, that there are energy interests, our core economic interests uh, for development, for uh, industries, for transportation, and that we can't discount that. Um, but, you know, this is where thinking about the 21st century is going to I think, involve a lot of rethink. And I think we're not doing enough of that. We ought to be more creative in figuring out ways to build packages that counter their, um, that their influence and their hold on us, that, that we don't have to be the ones who are reacting, that we are much more proactive. I think the core problem of American foreign policy since we became a superpower is that we are so often reactive rather than proactive. Time for last questions. And Richard, I'm going to start with you because you wrote about uh, a new concert of world power. And you wrote about how with change, uh, tumult and, and chaos, or it's danger potentially uh, when you start to really shake things up and that, that we're searching for a viable and effective way forward. I know because I've seen you enough on interviews that the world op the word optimism doesn't roll off your tongue easily. But how how optimistic are you that we're going to find a viable, effective way forward to try and improve the world situation? Jane, I'll get to that, but I'm going to take a one minute detour because I thought that last video question was so important about the idea of America taking a back seat. It would be ironic and tragic if we did. I mean, think about it. We're about to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11, when terrorists trained in Afghanistan killed 3,000 people here in an afternoon. We're, you know, we've lost, what, 600,000 plus American lives to a virus that began in Wuhan, China. Uh, climate change is increasingly making big parts of this country uninhabitable. Uh, we talked before about cyber, that our democracy is not safe from it, our government is not safe, our economy is not safe. So the idea that somehow we could turn our back on the world and deal simply with our domestic challenges seems to me fundamentally flawed. Uh, I once wrote a book called Foreign Policy Begins at Home, and I think we've got to address our domestic challenges, but foreign policy can't end at home. We've also got to deal with the world. The world's not going to call time out. It's not going to say, okay, you Americans, go sort yourselves out. And when you're back up and running, then you can deal with uh, all the challenges out there. Because these challenges still, they, every day they get worse, whether it is climate or health or Iran and, and North Korea's nuclear uh, programs. So we've got to figure out a way to do both. I think we can, and this gets me to the optimism part. It doesn't mean we send large numbers of American troops around the world to transform societies. 
to get everybody in the Arab world reading the Federalist Papers in Arabic translation. No, that, that cannot be a realistic goal for American foreign policy. But I think we can push back against the worst aspects, say, of, uh, of Chinese assertiveness. We can do more to tackle climate change, to improve global uh, health machinery, to set up some type of a system globally to deal with cyber. Look, the last 75 years has shown that American foreign policy can be re- enormously creative. Indeed, Dean Acheson, the, foreign, you know, the American Secretary of State after World War II, immodestly but not incorrectly titled his memoir, Present at the Creation. And we're still benefiting from some of the uh, arrangements and institutions that he and his colleagues in the Truman administration built. We haven't had anything in some ways equivalent to that in the aftermath of the Cold War three decades ago. So the way I would set up the challenge is, can the United States once again be creative in the world, not do it unilaterally, not try to transform the world, uh, not, not simply use military force, but using all of our tools, working with others? Can we build some arrangements that are able to contend with 21st century challenges? If we can, that will be a good century. But if we cannot, then we're in real trouble because the problems out there will not stay there. They will come here. That was Richard Haas being optimistic. We're now going to to move on to to Robin, because you are considered one of the foremost leaders, uh, experts, authorities on the Middle East, and you've spent a lot of time on an emotional, I would imagine, roller coaster of watching things that, that sent you in spiraling into despair and things that gave you hope. At this point, I just want to know, how do you hang on to, if you do, any optimism that there can be positive change in the Middle East? Well, at the moment, I don't have much optimism. Uh, I think, you know, to the broader question of being optimistic, I mean, I think one of the problems is that for us, our greatest strength is that we are a democracy. And it is also one of our great vulnerabilities because we have a change every four or eight years, and sometimes with Congress every two years in terms of what we are capable of doing or what we're willing to fund. Um, and, you know, the, the Middle East is the traditional hotspot. Every president has wanted to move on to uh, whether it was dealing with the Cold War, or dealing with China, dealing with some flashpoint around the, around the world, but has always been sucked back in because of the Middle East. I think we are, we are clearly signaling in our um, economic policy, but in, especially in our military policy, that we don't intend to do much uh, in the region going forward. But we're still stuck be- with Iran, which is unless we get a nuclear deal, it becomes a threat. Then there is a nuclear race, and it be- and and we're sucked back in once again to the Middle East when our priorities are elsewhere right now. And so um, I'm I'm the kind of person that. I don't say, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? I say, is there any water in the glass at all? So I come into <laughs> any, kind of, having spent my whole life covering war zones, I don't, I don't have much optimism. Um, I think uh, there are a lot of people who are well-intentioned. I think, you know, I would disagree with David in terms of the future of Iraq, which faces elections in October and Prime Minister Kadimi probably won't get elected again, um, or good luck if he does but that that there isn't much to be optimistic about in that troubled region. And I think as we pull out, um, that will give those who are looking for democratic alternatives or a better life uh, 
even less hope. And that was Robin Wright being optimistic. And we're going to close with David Ignatius. As most people know, you are a wildly successful spy novelist. You've written 11 books and you have this uncanny ability to foreshadow real events in those books. So here's your question. You have three daughters, Alexandra, Elisa, and Sarah, and I'm sure you're very much concerned about their future. And if you had to write a narrative that was positive going forward, how would you how would you do that? Cliff notes at this point, but how would you do that for the world the world at this point? Wow. I mean, um I'm glad you mentioned my my daughters because um, when I get really worried about the world, I, I worry about about what it's going to be like for them and for my grandchildren as they grow older. Um, so how how would I, as a, as a novelist, sketch a scenario in which um, the world would over time get better? Um, it. it as we see in, in, in fiction um, and in real life, it, it takes a lot of courage to challenge the um, corrupt despots uh, who control the world. I mean, we've all watched Les Miserables. I, was, you know, I have to take the tears out of my eyes when the kids are up on the barricades and fighting for freedom. And that story, 150 years old, I see every time I travel overseas, the, there is a, a yearning in every place that I go, streets of Hong Kong, China, and Russia, every country I go to the Middle East. Young people want the same things that they do in this country. They want the same things my, my own children do. And um, over time, I want the United States government and its allies to be with those people and their aspirations um, f for a better world. It, it, the characters in the novel that I would write would do it in secret and they do it in a fraternity of like-minded people from around the world. I actually was just thinking this weekend about how to structure a plot that has a little bit of that, of that feel to it. But the, the, underlying point I want to make is that as a, as a novelist, as a journalist, just as a citizen of the world, forgive me, I do see it. everywhere I go, I see the same thing, same aspiration. And we need to recognize that first, not forget it, uh, keep hold of it. And then where we can uh, help make help make it work, whether it's climate or you know this monstrous corruption that eats up every country I know. So that that's uh, I don't know whether that's the sentimental uh, you know sloppy uh, opera librettist or the novelist, but uh, but that's the way I, I look at it. You that's right. You also wrote an opera. You're multi multi talented. <laughs> um, we'll be watching for that book. And I I want to thank you all for making foreign policy exciting, at least for me. Um, as, as I said to you before we went on the air, I was going to try and maybe just a tiny little bit channel my late mother-in-law, Flora Lewis, who was the pioneer journalist and foreign affairs columnist uh, for the New York Times. And you have been so, so gracious and so generous and so smart. 
Um, thank you so much uh, to all of you for being with us today and for donating uh, your time and talent. And we hope that you, you will come back. Thanks for joining us today here in the other Washington, Washington, Connecticut. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground.